Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. You guys just bow your heads with me once more before we dive into the text that Daniel just read for us. Lord, we are so incredibly grateful for your word. It makes me think of even just hearing Daniel's prayer for us this morning, what Peter says in 1 Peter concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. That's us, the church. They searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted his sufferings and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but us. In the things that have now been announced to us through those who preach the good news to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Lord, what we examine today is the good news of God's grace for broken sinners. Good news that shapes our hopes, that shapes the way in which we encounter all of the news cycles, all of the disasters, all of the pain and successes in our world, and good news that is here for us today to be tasted and to see the goodness of you in it. So we pray that you are blessed in our time together and that you are exalted in our response to it, either in faith, repentance, or sanctification. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Uh, I remember... Growing up, the joy of going to a video rental store, something I've realized that my children will never experience now, and they have these, most of you I'm sure remember, these physical structures that you went into and you just see rows upon rows of movies, and they all had the same smell, the smell of nasty old carpet and the plastic casings of the VHS, that, this very distinct air freshener smell. And I remember, as a kid, there was one store which stood above the rest, and depending upon where we were in Missoula, if you lived on the north side in the sticks, anything past Mullen was the sticks, you'd go to Crazy Mike's video and we thought less of you. Uh, if you were a budget-conscious family, you would go to Hastings. But if you really wanted to live life to the fullest, if you wanted prime time, fully encased, three-day rental glory, you went to Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster was king. It enhanced your standing among the video viewers and even as Netflix and Redbox began to roll out, those stores of lesser qualities ultimately shuttered their door, but Blockbuster remained. But inevitably, in 2018, the last Blockbuster store, which was in Oregon, finally closed and now stands as nothing but a symbol of a bygone era. As see, history sees fads and movements, stores and celebrities rise and fall over the course of it, without any hesitation as to a hope for a comeback. And as culture progresses, tastes change, and technology advances, there's always casualties. I imagine even just economically, as a consumer, coming out of COVID-19, there's going to be changes. Things that endure are my spicy potato soft taco at Taco Bell will not endure COVID-19. They're pulling it away. We're going to have a different experience. It's not going to last. And this isn't new. And neither is the anxiety it could present us as consumers, but also as individuals. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter wrote to a collection of churches who themselves felt that they were growing out of style. The church was only several decades old at this point, after the sufferings of Jesus and his resurrection, and the proclamation of the gospel by the disciples. And there's a degree to where they're beginning to think that the glory days of the church are behind them. That these new kind of uh, attractive, heretical doctrines that were being preached. This affirmation of a sensual lifestyle that lives to satisfy your own pleasures, that that was soon going to displace and make irrelevant the faith that they once believed in, the gospel they once held to be true. Peter is writing to people with that anxiety to encourage them that you will not end up on the shelves of history. In fact, what we now see from our perspective of history is that the very things which Peter is going to encourage these churches of are the very things which have proved to endure God's church throughout history. 
Nero couldn't burn down the church. The gladiators couldn't keep up with the pace of converts who were becoming Christian despite their incessant need to murder them in public. The Enlightenment didn't displace Christians. Humanism hasn't consumed them. Postmodernity hasn't silenced them. And progressive thought has yet to rid themselves of us. Christians are like the cockroaches of history. For some reason, despite however hard the shoe, they seem to endure. Why is that? And regardless of your religion or your philosophy on life, I have a question for you. Why is it that you think that your life will in any way amount to anything other than a trivial commodity of time. A mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. You see, in a world full of talking points, which causes us to look at them as if those are the ultimate issues that will ever be presented in human history, Peter comes to us today and speaks to us by way of reminder. He's calling back. He wants to remind us that the future, the hope, and the conduct of those who are Christian, that is those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, all of that comes down to one simple truth. And that is the nature of being a follower of Jesus. The nature of being a follower of Jesus shapes our life in ways that bring us hope, but also pushes us forward. And the Bible has a name or a term for what this is called. It's called being a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows a master, and as Christians, our teacher, our master, our Lord over our life is Jesus Christ, the one who calls us to him and saves us from our sins, giving us new life by his righteousness. That's what we looked at in the first few verses of 2 Peter. It is by his righteousness, his actions, that we have been saved. And so if you've ever wondered what the sum and scope of the Christian life is, maybe you're here today with a friend or with family, you're watching online because you're vacationing, trapped in the home of one of our members, this text will give you a taste of what Christianity is all about and why we do what we do. Or maybe there are others in here who wrestle to understand, even with the pace of the world and so many of the physical, tangible signs of identity being stripped away, who am I and what am I doing? What is the sum of my life? Peter wants to help all of us today in understanding that. And the big picture of the passage today, which Daniel just read for us, is this, that the reality of Jesus gives us confidence and guidance in all of life. The reality of Jesus Christ gives us confidence and guidance for all of life. And we're going to see this in two ways in 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. Specifically in verses 12 through 15, if you have your Bibles in front of you, you can see there's a paragraph in 12 through 15, and in that paragraph, we're going to look at discipleship defined. In other words, we're going to answer what discipleship is. And then in verses 16 through 21, the end of our text today, we're going to look at discipleship defended. And looking at discipleship defended, we're going to say, why does discipleship matter? And we're going to begin today by looking at our first point. This is going to be in verses 12 through 15. Peter writes... Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, that is, I think it morally good, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, I love parts of Scripture in the New Testament where the authors actually begin to kind of give us a glimpse into their heart. They begin to speak biographically because here we have Peter who was a disciple, he was an apostle, he's going to be a martyr, he is currently writing Scripture which through the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be endured for centuries to come and yet first and foremost, Peter was a man who wanted to help others follow Jesus. It's in this passage we see the wonderful simplicity and the priority of following Jesus. The wonderful simplicity and the priority of discipleship. And as Peter is defining discipleship for us in this sort of biographical aside, there are two things I want us to look at in this passage which help us understand what discipleship is and how we ought to do it. And that is first he's going to talk to us about the priority of discipleship and secondly he's going to share with us the content of discipleship. And when it comes to the priority of discipleship, here we see the way in which Peter assesses the whole scope of his life. The way in which Peter assesses his life is through the lens of discipleship, helping other people 
follow Jesus. Church history doesn't have a specific, clear, um, and 100% certain way or answer on how Peter died, but tradition in the early church, pretty well documented, seems to show that he was crucified uh, not long after writing this very letter. But in this biographic moment, what's interesting is Peter is less concerned on how he's going to die, and he's more concerned about dying well. And this is something that's weighty for Peter because he mentions that Jesus has already made this known to him. And he's referencing a passage that we read in the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 21, and we read this dialogue when Peter first sees Jesus risen from the dead, knowing that the last time he was around Jesus, he was denying Jesus. Three times he denied being his disciple. So here's this encounter beginning in John 21 verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, and so that's Peter's other name, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. You might be confused at what he means by that, but John helps us out here. This was to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. So here, in this final scene with Jesus and Peter in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to die at the hands of someone else. And then he commissions Peter for a life of following Jesus by feeding Jesus' sheep. And as we read First and Second Peter, we see kind of three realities that are in this story that shape the whole of Peter's life. And that first reality is that he understood, for him specifically, that he was going to die specifically at the hands of someone else. But he also understood that this physical death was not the end. This wasn't going to be the end of Peter's story. In fact, what's interesting is in 2 Peter, our passage today, he doesn't explicitly reference death, but he actually speaks of it by way of an illusion. The ESV, which we're reading of, translates it as body to help us understand what's going on, but he's simply saying, soon I'm going to give up this tent. Soon this physical body is going to pass away. And the reason why he's using this language is he's showing that physical death isn't the end. There is life afterwards. Physical death happens to all of us, and yet that physical death is not the end of any of our stories. And this is where Peter's hope comes through, the second reality. Because even though he first understands that he will die, he secondly has hope for what is after his physical death, because there on the shores of that lake, as Jesus spoke to him as a friend, he knows that even broken, rebellious, Christ-denying sinners can be won back to Jesus because of Jesus' grace and love for his people. Jesus makes a way back to him through faith and repentance to all who have sinned against him, to all who have rejected him, to all who have ran from him, to all who have slandered him. Jesus invites you back, and that gives you hope. And in light of this hope, we see the third reality of Peter's life, that the whole scope of his life is summed up in the command, follow me and feed my sheep. In light of this, Peter now writing, probably a few decades later, reminds his churches of those very same points. He wants you to understand that you too will one day die. There will be a physical death for all of us. And yet after that death, there's different roads we might take. There is the possibility of condemnation because of our heart rejecting Jesus Christ and eternal judgment on behalf of that because our sin deserves death. But just as Peter proves, there is also the wonderful hope that you might reach that moment when your tent is set aside and you meet Jesus and he welcomes you with his love because you chose to realize that Jesus is the way in which we are saved from our sin. Jesus who not only forgives us, Jesus who not only delivers us, but a Jesus who, just like he did with Peter, recommissions the entirety of Peter's life around the command to follow me and to help others. 
If you watch documentaries or if you read biographies, you've noticed kind of a general trend. And that's regardless of whatever uh, influences or accomplishments an individual has in their life, there typically comes a point where they begin to, be, to think about their legacy. Where everything that they've accomplished, they realize is not sufficient to stand on. There must be something more to justify in their own minds to vindicate that their life actually made a difference. For those of you who have seen Disney's movie Coco, you've seen this, this fear illustrated in kind of the paranoid hope that's presented in Latin spirituality. Like it's a, it's a fun movie to sit together and watch with our kids, but if you actually think about the fear that's presented in that movie, it's terrifying. From this false sub-gospel view of life, your only hope to make it in the afterlife is that someone on earth will remember you in a positive way. And were these people on earth, were your family or friends to forget you, you would certainly perish. But the Christian has an immense hope for our legacy because it is Jesus, our great high priest, who we do not need to worry about dying and forgetting us, but instead who has risen eternally, who remembers us daily at the hand of God. Hebrews 7.25 says that we have salvation to the uttermost in Christ Jesus because I love how he says it. Like, what do you live to do in the summer? My wife lives in the summer to sit in the sun near the waters. What she lives for. What does Jesus live to do? According to Hebrews 7.25, he lives to make intercession before the Father on account of you. He lives to remind God that you are covered by his wonderful righteousness. He lives to give you confidence that you have been saved entirely, ultimately, and freely by faith in him. And because of this, Peter shows that there's a wonderful joy that comes in living not for a legacy of self-preservation, but in living for a legacy of helping others remember Jesus. Christians just like Peter, I pray, hopefully that's you, that you have repented and put your faith in Jesus. And if that's you, you have the joy of living life, not with fear that you might be forgotten, but with the joy of helping others remember Jesus. You see, Peter is writing his swan song to the church, and Peter does not care if he is remembered. He does not give them a song, remember me. Instead, he's like, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember all of the wonderful transformation he's done. Remember the joy of being brought from darkness into his marvelous light that you now proclaim the excellencies of him who has done all of that. Remember this Jesus. And he knows that at the end of his life, if his friends, if his family, and his coworkers, and his neighbors remember Christ, then he has the greatest sense of accomplishment in the world. John Owen was a 17th century theologian and pastor, and he understood this. He understood his heart, and he actually wrestled deeply with his life. Um, There are few theologians of the English language who have accomplished as much theological writing as John Owen did. And yet, despite that, he had this anxiety that he had not contributed much to the church. But in writing to a church member, As he was nearing his death, look at his tone that comes out. He says, I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm, but whilst the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despond. The promise stands invincible that he, that is Jesus, will never leave us nor forsake us. May we point others to that promise in our lives and Lord willing in our death. When we go to bed at night, we have these thoughts, don't we? Mine is always, did I close the garage door? But as Christians, may we have this nightly thought of, did I help others follow Jesus? Did I point them to this overwhelming joy, the wonderful promises which always and forever stand for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to see the priority of discipleship. And maybe I've convinced you. Maybe you see it here. Maybe you want the freedom of living your life for the legacy of Jesus instead of the legacy of self. But we say, but what does this look like? Discipleship is a scary word. It can mean all sorts of things. Well, here Peter also wants to help us when he begins to define discipleship again by pointing to the content of discipleship. 
Look back at what Peter is reminding his church of in verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be, you may be able to recall at any time Sorry, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so what is he doing here? He is stirring them up by way of reminder so that they would not forget and always be able to recall these things. When we think of stirring something up, we think of something kind of subtle and gentle. And Peter is certainly being gentle in his call to his churches here, but he is not being subtle. Another way you can interpret this stirring up is, is waking up or arousing. There is kind of this disjarring nature of what Peter is doing to the church. He's seeking to arouse them. There is an eighth law of thermodynamics in parenting, and that is on days where you don't have anything planned until noon, your kids wake up at five. And on days where you need to be somewhere at eight, your kids sleep in till ten. And so this happened one day. We were supposed to be out of the house early, and our three oldest kids were asleep, and they're all sleeping in the same room. And so I had the privilege of getting to go wake up my children. So I went into the room. I looked at all three of their beautiful, cute, sleeping, sweaty, drooling faces. And I went over and I whispered gently in their ears. That's not at all what I did. I stood in the middle of the room. And as loud as I could, I can't really do, I'll blow, blow out your ears, but I'm going to try to do it. So if you're at home and this is on audio, I just went as loud as I could. For a really long time. Long enough that when I ended, I heard Sarah across the house just laughing in our room. And my kids all were aroused. They woke up suddenly. They knew that something was happening that they needed to pay attention to. This is the nature of Peter's warning to the church. It's not a whisper in the air. It's a trill. To say, pay attention to this. Focus on this. What is this? Again, look at verses 12 and 15. Understanding this is important. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Verse 15. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may may be able at any time to recall these things. So when we are studying the Bible, we want to know what these things are. What is he reminding them of? Is it fantasy football stats? Is it, is it what they're going to do on Monday morning? What is he reminding them of? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can look right before that, and you can see what Peter is doing beginning in verse 3. He is reminding the church of the wonderful transformation of God's grace when they are converted. What is the fruit of faith and repentance? He says, you have been granted the knowledge of Jesus who calls you to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to you his very promises, his great promises. Then you have become a partaker of the divine nature. You have godly affection. Look at the wonderful transformation that is in you. And then he gets into these qualities. There are these eight qualities in verses five through seven. These qualities are how Christians should live in newness of life. And you could see them there in verses 5 through 7. It includes faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. In other words, Peter's point that he is reminding them of is the salvation which saves you, converts you, and renames you in Jesus Christ must ultimately show up in your life. This cascade of qualities that goes from inward to outward. That's what he's reminding them of. That's the content of his discipleship. And so in looking at Peter's discipleship, we can say there are two things that he does. And I think the first thing is something that I often forget in my own ability to help others follow Jesus. Is that the very first thing he does in wanting to change someone's conduct is to remind them of what Jesus has already done. That's what he did, right? Look back at verse 12. He says, I'm reminding you of these things, though you know them. And though you are established in them, in the truth that you have. And what is he talking about? He's not saying, I've taught you these things before. The way Peter's talked about truth in First and Second Peter is, this is the gospel. The gospel, you can't be saved without knowing these things. Christ has done all of this for you, in you already. Peter's discipleship starts with the positive assumption that the disciple is converted. 
that they have the power of Jesus to change their lives. And so even when things are hard and even when things are difficult, we might be optimistic and say, if you are saved, God has done this in you. And change is possible. Even if sometimes slow and difficult and painful, we believe that God has done this truly inside of you, that you have been changed. Discipleship starts by pointing people back to the gospel which saves them. But then secondly, discipleship seeks to advance the nature of that conversion into a life of godliness. It seeks to press that hope and that transformation into the life of the believer. It shows up. It's different. When we talk about discipleship at Sovereign Hope, we have a definition for it. And we define discipleship as this. Helping each other follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel. Each of those phrases is really important. It's probably a a teaching series on its own to break through that. And maybe we'll do that someday. And Daniel's probably going to hold me responsible for that now that I've said it. But we'll see if we get there. And there's this divine simplicity to discipleship. And yet it bears immense divine results, results which only God can do. I'm a terrible discipler, but Jesus is a pretty good one. And he's what I bring to the table every time I try to help somebody. He's what you bring to the table every time you try to help somebody. And there are times where discipleship can look formal. That's sitting down with somebody and reading your Bible or going through a book study. But Peter's discipleship here, while not an exhaustive example, is really informal, isn't it? He's writing to friends about their faith, Friends who are fearful, and he's seeking to encourage them, and he's seeking to call them to act as Christians, even when life is hard. And what I love about discipleship, but what's also the burden of discipleship, is we can spend so much time defining it that we spend so little time doing it, because we don't actually know what it looks like. And so actually experiencing discipleship and seeing discipleship is what helps us the best. And so we are going to start on our Sovereign Hope podcast just a, a series that's going through that we want to help you guys with this. And what this series does is it's going to be some of you who are in here, some people who are outside the church, and we're just asking them two questions. Question one is what was, what's been the most transformative discipleship experience you've had? In other words, we want to see what has helped them. But then secondly, I'm going to ask them, What does your discipleship look like? And by doing that, we're going to see that the profound simplicity of discipleship bears ramifications we can't understand. The simplicity of talking about Jesus over the dinner table with a college student you've invited into your home, texting daily someone in your community group about their encouraging them in their fight against sin. These simple things that we can do can have divine ramifications because the power of God is at work inside of it. And so if you haven't yet subscribed to our podcast, um, we would encourage you to do that so you don't miss these interviews. I'm sure they'll be on our website as well. But Peter's goal in writing to the church right now, as we're going to see as 2 Peter goes on, is he's preventing them from walking away from the gospel by calling them to apply the gospel to their lives, by becoming disciples of the Christ who stands behind the gospel. Discipleship is a way of life for Christians. Growing for holiness isn't for the super or the sincere. Growing in holiness are those who have been made holy. is for those who have been made holy by Jesus, which is all Christians everywhere. You don't get an opt-out card. This is the life of Christianity. You following Jesus and you helping others do the same. But Peter assumes a critique here. He assumes a challenge, right? As we go on, we'll see there are these scoffers during in the church at this time who are trying to threaten the true believers in their conduct and in their hope. And these scoffers say this, why should we follow Christ in such a costly way? Why is this worth it? In other words, why is growing in our ability to follow Jesus and helping others do the same so important? Why is it so big that it has to displace other things in my calendars and in my affection? Peter's answer is really simple. His answer is this, because it's true. Because this is really what Jesus says. And here he moves into his second point, This is where we see discipleship defended. Peter is now, in verses 16 through 21, going to defend all that he's asking the church to do by showing the reliability of Jesus. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he did what he says he did, and if he said what he says he says, then you should do it. You should listen and obey. Read with me verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by him, to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so now Peter is beginning to show and defend this legacy of discipleship by defending what the Christian life is not. He says this Christian doctrine, this gospel, which consumes all of your life and changes everything that you do, is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. The boy who cried wolf is a fable. Does it matter if this boy really existed? Does it matter if the town people really were humans in history and got mad and protested to his constant false alarms? No, because the point of the story is just for you to be more wise and consistent with your words. And there are many other religions who the historicity of them doesn't really matter so long as you understand the principle of morality or of life that they're trying to get across. Christianity is no myth. Christianity is history. It is the real story of God setting forth in redemption to save sinners. Moreover, not only is it a myth, it is not man-made. It's not cleverly devised in the hearts of men. It's often said by critics of Christianity, and maybe you've heard this, specifically you GCF students in maybe humanities or philosophy class, that Christianity is nothing more than a simple religion of power kept by those who want to affirm the status quo, and those have been kind of typified and gotten the moniker of, you know, primarily white Western males. Just a religion to cater to the power of those individuals. But this is completely off base for two reasons. First, it is theologically incompatible with the gospel. If men of power wanted to invent a religion which catered to their own authority, they certainly would not have invented Christianity. Christianity is built around three key principles. Principle one, there is a God and it's not you. Principle two, you're the idiot in this story. Principle three, you can be saved because of the work of someone else and not yourself. You see, Christianity is a religion of power but it is the power of God in Jesus Christ to save and not the power of man. It is incompatible that this is something that a secular humanistic mind could look at and say, this might elevate my standing because we come to Christ as slaves in need of grace and not as superheroes looking to be affirmed. But secondly, this claim makes no sense statistically. There are more non-white Christians in the world than there are white Christians. In fact, statistically speaking, if you are a white male, you are a unicorn in the church. There are few statistical categories less likely to be in church than a white Western male. If you are a woman or a person of color, you are astronomically more likely to be active in your religion and church attendance than a male. And it also fails to recognize that the fastest growing churches in the world are non-white and in non-Western cultures, generally typified not by prosperity or power, but by poverty and often persecution. How can you explain such a phenomenon? Well, this is either the greatest group delusion in the history of the world or the claim that Jesus Christ rose from his dead, from the dead to empower a church save sinners and endure it till the end is really the right interpretation of history. And Peter affirms the latter. And he does so from the most empirical and enlightenment perspective. Namely, I saw it. I was there. I was an eyewitness to it. And now he says his job as an eyewitness is to make known Jesus' power and Jesus' coming. That's what we see in verse 13 here. And when we think of power and coming in English, we will probably think of Jesus' miracles at his first coming, his incarnation, right? The life Jesus lived on earth. But what's kind of lost on us in the English translation is that word coming in Greek is, is parousia. 
And in the New Testament Greek, that word parousia is almost used exclusively to refer to Christ's second coming, when he comes back to gather the church. And so here he is saying, I saw with my own eyes his first coming, and now it is my business to prepare the church to be right with Christ at his second coming. And he gives two proofs to the church to help them understand the certainty that Jesus is coming back. And that you will not, by following Jesus, by spending your life glorifying him and discipling others, you will not end up shuttered like a blockbuster video. And these two proofs come first in this experience he has with James and John, two other disciples, called the Transfiguration. If you've never read this, we'll read it a little later. You could read it in Matthew chapter 17 or Mark chapter 9. And then these accounts, Jesus takes these three men up on a mountain and becomes transfigured before them. What does a transfiguration look like, you might ask, because you're a reasonable person and that's not a common word. Well, look like this. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. He was born human, and yet he was still the eternal second person of the Trinity. And when he was transfigured, the divinity of Jesus shone in a way unveiled by his humanity. In other words, the the veil of his humanity was parted back where he no longer just looked like a simple human and he was in full, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was radiant, both Matthew and Mark say. He was glowing bright as the sun. His clothes became vivid white like the brightest of all linens. And on top of that, they heard God the Father say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, the sum of this whole experience they had on the mountain was to confirm to these three disciples that this Jesus is the real deal. This Jesus shows us there is a reality beyond our physical world as we understand it. There is a God who speaks, and the only way in which we see that reality and hear that God is by understanding this God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the doorway to understanding the God who saves And so we see this, and he recounts this experience. You hear his language in verses 17 and 18. For when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Wouldn't that be great if you were on this mountain? Certainly, if we saw what Peter saw, you too would trust that this Jesus, if he says he's going to come back, that he is certainly going to come back. He seems capable of doing that. In fact, remarkably so, not long after this, actually on the way down the mountain, Jesus predicts his death, but also predicts almost more unbelievably that he's going to rise again. And not only did these disciples see night bright Jesus on the mountain, they saw Jesus get up out of a grave and physically greet them and eat fish with them. Man, if we could see that, wouldn't that reshape our priorities? Wouldn't that bring certainty in a world of uncertainty? We don't know what ordinances, what laws, what face mask mandates, whatever will come two days from now. But Peter is saying with certainty, you can know that this Christ is the center of it all. You can know this. And he says something even more astounding. You don't have to have been on the mountain. You, you today in here can have that same certainty. Look at what he says in verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's something utterly astounding. Peter says, I saw the radiant, divine, transfigured Christ, and you see him in scripture, and we're basically the same. 
That's the remarkable comparison that he's saying. It's not to downplay one or the other. It's to hold both of them in tension. You see not only his beauty, you see not only his glory, but what Peter is trying to press into your heart is his reliability. How might our experience in God's word match the reliability of seeing night bright Jesus shine on a mountain and a voice speak out of a majestic glory? Peter explains, because it's not just man's words. This is God's words, written by men as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. I had a conversation the other day. My wife and I have been praying for opportunities to evangelize to our neighbors. I share this with our community group. We had one uh, in the weird time to evangelize, like, hey, come to church in four months. You'll love it. Um, But uh, he began talking about the Bible, and he grew up in the Catholic Church. He, he called the Bible basically a heavy, heavily edited human history book. Perhaps you've encountered people who believe that. Maybe you yourself even wrestle with that. And while my conversation with my neighbor didn't address these issues because it wasn't really privy to it at that point, there are other things to communicate. Christians should take great heart that the Bible is an inerrant, it's without error, and divinely inspired book in its original manuscripts. You see, our English translations that we have here are based off the original manuscripts, and we should have a good level of confidence that those original manuscripts written in the original language have been uh, transmitted in a way that's understandable, clear, and reliable by the translators of our modern copies. In fact, when you think about text comparisons to other literary sources, the Bible stands unprecedented in the level of accuracy we have in its documents. When you think of the works of Plato, we have seven existing manuscripts of Plato's writing. Of Aristotle, we have 49. There are 2,000 copies, original manuscripts of Homer, that's the poet, not the Simpson. But of the New Testament, we have 6,000 copies in the original Greek and 24,000 copies in other languages during this New Testament period. Additionally, on top of this nearly 30,000 count documents, those documents, all 30,000 of them, have almost pure unison on 99.5% of all textual issues. And of that half a percentage where there are variants amongst the manuscripts, Almost none of them have any bearing on the Christian doctrine essential to its faith. It's mostly the moving around of prepositions or the putting in of pronouns or the removing of them. Not many, or many of us might love the details and the apologetics which stand in defense of the Bible. But Peter in this text cares less about defending the Bible as much as he does about us believing the Bible. That's his point here. Jesus will not be impressed by your ability to defend inerrancy and inspiration if you yourself are not submitting to Christ as Lord of Scripture. That's what he's after in this text. If this is the nature of the Bible, then shouldn't you ought to believe it and follow it? Peter wants us to see at the center of this divinely inspired book is the prophetically consistent role of Jesus Christ. He is the center of it all. And for the Christian, we ought to live like him because we have been saved by his righteousness. We have been called into the life of Christ. Your Christian conduct proves the power of Scripture far better than any historical document search will. Do you really believe that? Because Scripture proclaims the miracle loudly, boldly, consistently with divine inspiration, but your ability to be transformed like Christ and to live like him applies the miracle. We see it. To have growth in these areas of holiness is to confirm that God exists because I can't do this. I am not strong enough, special enough, or smart enough, but Christ is. So what do we do with this? Peter says this, pay attention. Pay attention to this Jesus and the centrality he has in God's prophetic word like you would a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What is he saying here? 
saying life is like a miner's tunnel. It's dark. There are many paths you can go by, perhaps many voices that echo from the void that stands before us. But for those who want to do well, I love how Peter says that. It will do you well. Do you want to do well? Pay attention to the light. Look at the center of Christ. What he's done for you, what he's calling you to do, what he's given you in scripture, and pay attention. Follow it. You see, scripture makes sense of our world by rising above all of the darkness, all of the chaos, all of the chatter, all of the tweets, and says, here is Jesus. And it reorients everything. It gives us eyes to see what we formerly could not. It gives us bearing and direction in storms we have no chance of surviving on our own. It holds up the reality that one day Jesus will come back and he has given us exactly the light we need to make it to that day blameless, persevering in faith, finally seeing not simply by faith but in reality the morning star of Christ rising in our hearts John says at the end of Revelation, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun, for Christ is our light. What a day that will be. And so here today, in hoping for heaven's sky, we follow heaven's window to us in Scripture. Peter's presenting the proof of Scripture so that you will trust Jesus as Lord over your life that you do not need to fear the shuttering of your door even when culture threatens to leave everything you believe in the dust, that Christ will endure. See, do you realize that if Facebook, or if, if Twitter and YouTube were people, they would not even be old enough to drive? That those who are born in the second half of the Cold War are still too young to order off some senior citizens' menus? The first radio station just turned 100 this year. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, died at 96 years of age, and I knew him well at 96. And yet it's only 150 years ago that slavery was still legal, and Abraham Lincoln was still working his way up in politics. What's my point in saying all of this? My point is that when it comes to the priorities of living life, the priorities of this world will always be changing. What seems like distant Stone Age history for us is often only a decade away because history will give us lights to follow, platforms to stand on, trumpets to toot, some new idea, some new frontier, frontier which promises to guide us to the end, but it's Jesus and only Jesus who leads us to a life of obedience which endures over all things it's not only what saves us, but it's what gives us the priorities in life to follow him and help others do the same. If you're not a believer in here today, I want to actually leave you with the story of this transfiguration from Jesus and pull a point of application from it for you. This is Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by himself. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, this representation of the law and the prophets, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. Peter left out this kind of rash decision that he made in his recitation in Second Peter. Uh, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make us three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when God interrupted him. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. If you have never seen the relief and the reorganization that comes from a Christ who takes your sins and gives you his righteousness, I pray that he might touch you so that you might rise to see Jesus and only Jesus. 
that everything else in this world, even the immensely inspired, divinely given law and prophets find their head in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that will endure you through the darkness of this world like the Christ who has come to shine his light in it for you. Do you see that? If you do, we're gonna confess sin here in a moment together. I pray that this is your first step in confessing, repenting, believing, being saved by this incredible King Jesus. For you who are Christian today, do you believe the word of God in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he has died to change you? Do you believe that he's coming back and that he expects us to live Christianly until he comes to grow in holiness, to advance in maturity, to always be reminded and stirred up so that we ought not forget what he has done for us and he has called us to be faithful disciples and disciple makers in the meantime? What does it look like for you to believe Jesus at his word and prioritize your following and you helping others follow Jesus? Taking a friend, a fellow member, someone who sits next to you at church, out for lunch, sharing with them where you need help in following Jesus. Asking them how their heart is doing at a real level amidst everything that's going on in our world. Reading the Bible together, praying together, prioritizing a call of discipleship where when all is said and done, we will look back like Peter and say, this is all I wanted. Uh, I mentioned the last time I preached two weeks ago that J.A. Packer died at 93 years old. He spent seven decades reading, writing theology, and caring for the church. And near his death, it was asked to him, what would your final words to the church be? And he answered this. This is what Peter is after. This is what we at Sovereign Hope want to be after in our membership, in our community groups, in our city, in our conduct, in our endurance. He said this, glorify Christ in every way. It wasn't a novel strategy for church growth. It wasn't a postmodern apologetic. It was the very reality that this Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And our lives are beheld to him in glory for our own good, and for the salvation of those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we as a church are a church who share the eternal apologetic, not of knowledge understood, but of grace applied. That we would be a witness to our world because they cannot explain the transformation the gospel has done on us. The witness of our words in a tumultuous social media world, the priority of our finances in a bleak economy, our prayers for wisdom and preservation and grace in a dialogue which is venomous, but more importantly, an eternal hope in a world that is shaken. Lord, I pray that we would not forget these things, that you have equipped us for such a life of discipleship as this. Help us to sharpen each other and push each other towards this end for your glory till the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts and you, Christ, as the ultimate church member, the head of the church, presents us to himself radiant and spotless without blemish. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.